Hey everybody, I'm Logan Camden. I'm Carson Brabber. And this is Nerd Sesh. No! Oh my god, how could he do that? Are you on Donate What? Charles Darwin. Today on Nerd Sesh, we're going to be tackling what I think is one of our most interesting topics ever, and... I don't know, I think we could definitely go a lot of different ways with this, but we're going to be talking about the top 10 NBA players of all time without a championship ring. Logan, I'm going to throw it over to you first. Who's your number 10? Well, I want to preface this list by saying that, you know, circumstance and how close a player got to the finals is Mm -hmm. definitely going to be a factor here, but as well as their individual careers. But, you know, that's how I gauge this list, and I may put how close you got to a ring higher on my list than if a player was good. But with that being said, number 10 on my list is Chris Paul. Okay. I have Chris Paul a few spots higher. I have Patrick Ewing at number 10 on my list. So why don't you talk about CP3 first? Well, you know, that's interesting. I have Patrick Ewing a few spots higher on okay. my list. And it's mainly because, as I mentioned, that how close you got matters. Mm-hmm. And Chris Paul never reaching a conference finals is definitely... Well, he's reached one now. He's reached... Yeah, good point with the Rockets. I was thinking more when he was leading with the Clippers, mm-hmm. but... On the whole, I just feel that Patrick Ewing getting to the finals is a little more important. I know that he got there when Jordan wasn't there in 94, uh, but I'll let you take Pat Ewing for for the case for Chris Paul. Um, I actually found he was a very hard one to rank Mm. because Chris Paul has had such a tremendous career and it just seems like he's lacking a ring. And that, that goes for a lot of other point guards on this list. They have so many good numbers and so many good seasons, maybe not MVP seasons for other players, but not Chris Paul either. But the ring would cement them very high on a lot of top point guards list. I mean, he's a 10-time All-Star, four times he was All-NBA first team, seven times he was All-Defense first team. He led the league in assists four times, assists per game, and five times in steals. Chris Paul is exactly what you want in a pass-first defensive point guard. Yeah, and also a guy that is one of the best clutch scorers in basketball. I think everyone's terrified of a Chris Paul mid-range pull-up or a Chris Paul runner. I'm going to really get into the argument for him later because I think – He is truly as an individual talent at the very top tier of this list, and he probably could be higher for me if he had that that finals appearance Mm -hmm. where he was the guy or even, you know, he didn't even have the conference finals appearance as the guy. Um, But I'll get into that more later for Ewing. He's an 11-time All-Star, one-time All-NBA first team, but you can't really hold that against him because he's playing in the best center era in a long time. Um, Or centers used to always be better, but the 90s was pretty insane. Six-time All-NBA second team, three-time second team All-Defense. That one's even crazier to me because five straight years averaging three blocks a game, four blocks a game one year, never led the league in blocks, Never first team all defense because he's going up against Mark Eaton. Then he's going up against Akeem. Then he's going up against Akembe. Well, I noticed you uh, tweeted that out. If you guys want I content did. that uh, that mostly Carson mm. for for when we're doing these and researching, Carson yeah. will normally just yeah. pop out a few interesting stats. Yeah, because if I find something really cool like that, I do. I give a little preview for the show. But six top five MVP finishes, career averages of 21 and 10 in 2.4 blocks per game on 50% from the field. And in the playoffs, 20 and 10 in 2.2 blocks per game on four. 47%. Nine straight years averaging 22 plus points per game, a pillar of consistency, and 13 straight averaging 20 plus. And if you look at the team success, he did get excruciatingly close. And those Knicks teams were so good for so long. In the 93 season, they win 60 games. Ewing averages 25 and a half in the playoffs, and they lose in six to the Bulls. And I don't think anyone was stopping the Bulls at that point. I don't think you could argue that the Knicks were the better team. I don't think you could argue that they deserve to win because that is an all time great 
dynasty. Then in the 94 playoffs, averages 22, 12, and three blocks per game, obviously gets to the finals. But I think that everyone will always remember game seven, where the Knicks go down to the Rockets as the John Starks disastrous performance, where he shoots two for 17. But in game six and seven, when the Knicks had closeout opportunities, Ewing was not good at all. Averaged just 17 points, or he scored just 17 in each of those games on 13 of 37 shooting over the two, which is 35% from the field. And on the finals as a whole, just 19 a game on 36% from the field. But again, his teams were great for a long time. He was an elite two-way player, 750 win teams, 13 straight playoffs. And again, very much a product of his era. I don't know if Patrick Ewing could ever be the best player on a championship team. Obviously, they got extremely close, so you could probably argue that he could, but you look at the teams he lost to. This is his entire postseason career. Five times to the Bulls, three times to the Pacers, lost to the prime Celtics, the championship Pistons, the championship Rockets, the championship Spurs, and the Miami Heat. Save the Heat, those are all teams that are historically very relevant. So the level of competition was extremely high, and they got super close, and he was a great individual player. Man, that's tough. Brutal. Brutal. Absolutely brutal. And some great rivalries were born out of that. Mm -hmm. To lose the Bulls five times, though, that means that you are getting beaten by the best team in basketball for most of the years they didn't win a title. And you'll notice the era from from which most of our players are from. It's kind of the consensus. Uh, Yeah, Jordan definitely stole some hearts there. The reason I don't have him higher, um, I guess we can get into as I talk about the next guys. And I actually think my conversation is really interesting with the guy I have next on my list. So let's move on to number nine. Who do you have there? This one may shock you, Carson. The number nine, I have Reggie Miller. Okay. Reggie is the first guy off my list. So why don't you talk about Reggie first? So I put Reggie above a guy like Chris Paul because Reggie's really a tweener. He's not good enough to be on the upper echelons of my list, but he also has a finals appearance where he was the guy for Indiana. I mean, Reggie was not only a dominant three-point shooter, he's a dominant scorer. Two seasons averaging over 31 points per game and two two postseasons. Yeah. Two postseasons. He was a five-time All-Star, a three-time All-NBA third-teamer, which, you know, you look at the career numbers of Chris Paul and the differences, and you would say Chris Paul is probably the better player. But again, if Reggie got to the finals, I feel like I have to hold that above. I know Chris Paul is playing through a very tough Western Conference, but I do think his finals appearance holds some merit. Um, he has some also, you know, some clutch performances, some mm-hmm. notable performances. Everyone remembers the Spike Lee game, the choke. Um, but I think Reggie deserves to be here because of his finals appearance and above Chris, just because I hold that with some value. Reggie's raw statistics and accolades will always sell him short. Just 18, three and three on his career, only a five-time all-star, only three-time all-NBA. I don't think he's on the same tier as Chris Paul as a player. I really don't. I think Chris Paul's all-around game, his ability to affect winning. And again, I'll get into that later because I've got some really compelling stuff on Chris Paul, I believe. Reggie was a guy that was always at his best when it mattered, consistently better in the playoffs, averaged like I think two and a half more points per game in the playoffs and had some great playoff runs in that run in 2000 that you mentioned. Incredible by him to average 24 a game to make it to the finals. But I think the reason that Pacers team got there and then, of course, got pretty handily obliterated by an all-time great Lakers team is because of the great team that they had and because the best team they had to beat to get there was the Latrell Sprewell, Allen Houston Knicks. And if you look at Reggie's supporting cast, he's got Jalen Rose, Rick Smith, Dale Davis, who was an all-star, Mark Jackson. And it just means a lot less to get to a finals there, in my opinion, than it does, honestly, even to make it to a conference finals in the modern day Western Conference, because this was a miserable East post-Jordan. Couldn't you say the same thing about Chris Paul's Clippers teams? In what sense? They were very talented. 
they were very talented. But my point is that I think Chris Paul is monumentally better as an individual talent, and I don't think that the single finals appearance is enough to lift Reggie above him. And that's why I can't even put him above a guy like Patrick Ewing, because Ewing had more consistently great teams. I believe he was a better individual player. Um, And so, yes, Reggie was great. He's clutch. Clutch as can be, but he doesn't quite make my list. My number nine is a very different player. Allen Iverson is my number nine. Logan is shocked. Wow, I have AI way higher. Okay, so let me run down the case for AI. So he's obviously an MVP, an 11-time All-Star, three-time first-team All-NBA, three-time second-team, three-time third-team, a four-time scoring champ, 26.7 points per game, is seventh all-time, and 6.2 assists on 42.5% from the field, 10 straight years averaging 26 points per game. I don't think anyone could deny that even though he was very inefficient, one of the all-time great bucket getters, a guy that would attack the rim without fear, would shoot 35, 40 times in a game if he had to, or even if he didn't have to, that was just his nature. 29.7 points per game in the playoffs, and I don't know if this makes it even more impressive, on 40% from the field, 26 and a half field goal attempts per game in his playoff career. That is absurd volume. I guess it probably doesn't make it more impressive, but just the fact that he was willing to take that tax physically is mind-blowing. And I guess I'm going to have to make the argument against AI. I was sort of thinking I would be making a pro AI argument, but only made the playoffs eight times, only won a playoff series in four years. Obviously, the crowning achievement by far is that 2001 run. Averages 33 points per game over a 22-game playoff run on 39% from the field. Again, it's incredible. 30 field goal attempts, and in the finals, incredible performance. 35.6 a game, 35-plus in four or five 48 and a win in game one, the signature performance of his career. He elevated um, subpar supporting casts. Well, really just that one year because his teams were never all that good besides that, which I think is significant because a bunch of these guys have had consistently great teams. And also it was the nature of the team where you sort of had to put subpar guys around him because Allen Iverson was going to shoot the ball 30 times a game no matter who was there. And what I think the most amazing thing about AI is, is how long he stayed on the floor. I mean, routinely getting 47 minutes a game in that playoff run and all the time there will never be another player like Allen Iverson for so many reasons there will never be a volume shooter guard like him who doesn't shoot the three well there will never be a guy that plays 40 minutes a game there will never be a guy that takes as many shots as he does at that size in that style he is really an icon of a bygone era now Carson let me ask you this so you mentioned how bad his teams were I think that's the the second worst team to ever get to an NBA Finals outside of the 07 Cavaliers. Mm. Do you I think it might be worse. You think it might be worse? Yeah. Why? Because they had Big Z? Uh, I just think they had a couple stronger pieces. Big Z, well, I guess it's pretty arguable. I guess my argument for the Cavs being better actually would be LeBron basically, so that's cuz we're talking about the supporting cast. So, absolutely in the same conversation. And then to win a game against the Lakers, that's an all-time achievement. And so does he not get bumped up anymore because he took such a bad team to the finals? No, I don't think it's enough single-handedly because I think the other guys, and the guy I have one spot above him might end up surprising you. I just think there's a different level of consistency and of winning with these other guys. So fun fact, Eric Snow was on both teams. Yeah, that's a good point. Eric Snow was probably the the X factor to both teams. Uh, Let's move on to number eight. Who do you have there? So I have Patrick Ewing at my eight spot. Okay, is there anything you would like to add about old Patricio? Um, Nothing other than the fact that I would have him over other guys just because of his finals appearance. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I can you count his 90? I don't think you really – I don't think that matters no. whatsoever. I think, if anything, and I wouldn't make this case, if you're Bill Simmons and you're a proponent of the Ewing theory, 
you could argue that it works against them, the fact that they were able to get there without him. I wouldn't do that, but some have theorized. My number eight, and Logan, I sort of have a feeling that this guy is not on your list. I have the Iceman, George Gervin, at my number eight spot. I considered George Gervin very heavily for my list. I didn't put him on there, though. So Gervin, a 12-time All-Star, five-time first-team All-NBA, two-time second-team, two-time third-team, a four-time scoring champ, career average of 25 points per game on 50% shooting, 12 straight years averaging 20-plus points per game. In the playoffs, even better, 26.5 and 7 on 50% shooting. Three times he was top three in MVP voting, and I always like to look back at MVP voting because that reflects sort of the sentiment and the thinking of the time, and if you are considered a top three guy in basketball, that is very significant, and his only all-star teammates ever were Larry Keenan and a 33-year-old artist Gilmore who maybe was the same for one season in San Antonio, but they barely even played together, and still, Gervin made the playoffs in 13 of 14 seasons. I honestly think George Gervin might be the most underrated player in basketball history because I think people throw out names like Alex English because he was the leading scorer of the 80s and he doesn't get talked about. And then in talking about Alex English, it's almost like he's no longer as underrated while Gervin is a tier above as a player and never gets talked about. And look at you. You're doing it right now, Carson. I am doing it right now. Our cult following on Nerd Sesh is going to make George Gervin not underrated anymore. Listen, and the world will be better for it because he's really incredible. His five-year peak from 78 to 82 averaged 29.8 points per game in the regular season, 29.6 in the playoffs, and led five straight postseasons in points per game. And if you look at his playoff career, he never made it to a finals, but he was very close a few times. 79 loses in game seven of the Eastern Conference Finals to the Bullets. He has 42 in game seven, and they lose by two. And again, by no means an all-time supporting cast. And that was a year, I think you could argue, they legitimately could have won the title because the Sonics went on to beat the Bullets that year in the rematch. But obviously, if the if the Spurs were that close, they could have won that. And then gets back in 82 to the Western Conference Finals, loses to the Lakers, 83 loses again to the Lakers. But what are you going to do against an all-time titan of a team? So I just think Gervin, his consistency, I think his winning is underrated. I think he's considered a guy that didn't have the team success, but relative to the Dantleys and the Kings and the Englishes and even the the Neeks, he really did have some team success. I felt like it was a little hard to make this case for George Gervin, but I applaud you for doing so. Thank you. uh, I'm glad he made one of our lists. I think that it's interesting comparing him to a guy like AI who has so much more of a place in sort of the current mind of NBA fans, he's a lot more memorable Mm -hmm. and he's a lot more celebrated. But I think Gervin, I think he had a better career. You know, and I think if you look at some of the older NBA fans, Mm -hmm. like my dad, I can't tell you how many stories I heard about what George Gervin did back in the day. So I think that's a good point. Maybe I wouldn't say that George Gervin is looked at upon by older fans, how we look at Allen Iverson. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'd say he's underrated and people should definitely talk about Gervin more. Because AI is a cultural icon, which Mm -hmm. always, whereas... Gervin is literally the Iceman because he was so cool, which, you know, is a cool title to have in the moment, but it doesn't always age as memorably. Let's move on to number seven. Who do you have there? Number seven, I have Steve Nash. Wow. So do I. I have Steve Nash. Why don't you run down the numbers? All right. Um, You know, Nash, again, never reached a NBA Finals, and it's hard to blame him for it. He had some very good teams. They just went up against stiff competition, and I wouldn't say as stiff as the 90s East because, again, you're running into the buzzsaw of Michael Jordan. Mm. 
might be as stiff as the 90s East. You think because so? you, have, you basically have two dynasties going on at once. Spurs and Lakers. With the Spurs and then the late 2000s Lakers. Yeah, and he ran into it to both of them. Yeah. The 2005 Western Conference Finals, they lost to the Spurs in 5. 06, they lost in the Western Conference Finals to Nash's old team, the Mavericks, in 6. And then in 2010, they had a Western Conference Finals loss to the Lakers in 6 as well. And I guess why Nash is here is he has his two MVPs, and he was a very good player for a long time, third in career assists, six-time league leader in assists, five-time league leader in assists per game. I just think that Nash's lack of a ring and, well, lack of a ring, you wouldn't be on this list, <laughs> lack of a finals appearance really just knocks him down a peg. Yeah, I mean, Nash was truly brilliant offensively. I don't think that can be overstated. Genius passer, seven, a 10-plus assists per game seven times, 49-43-90 career shooting splits. He's just the most efficient star ever. And I think actually Steph's going to end up rivaling him for that from the perimeter. That is, um, and in the playoffs, 17 and nine on 47, 41, 90 splits. He got very close a bunch of times, as you mentioned with the Mavs in 2003, losing to the Spurs in the Western conference finals, 2005, which you mentioned, he averages 24, five and 11 in the playoffs on 52, 39, 92 splits. And they just can't get over the hump against that Spurs team. And then the one that you didn't mention where they had another legitimate title shot, 2007, they don't make it to the Western Conference Finals, but for all intents and purposes, they played the, the NBA Finals in the second round against the Spurs, and the Boris Diaw, Amari Stonemeyer suspensions lose them that mm-hmm. series. I think that the arguments against Steve Nash, who, by the way, I, I obviously have below Chris Paul because I haven't mentioned Chris Paul yet. Chris Paul was not on either of our top 10 point guards lists. I know that that was early in the process. I think we we really screwed up on that one. I don't know if you have any regrets. I have some serious regrets because I think CP3 is really a phenomenal individual talent. What do you think's changed? I think that we just kind of messed up in the moment. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I think that we were we were rookies to this process. Um, but yeah, Nash did have great supporting casts. Obviously elevated the guys around him. But Amari Stoudemire, do not short sell him. He was a top 10 NBA guy for Five years in that stretch, Sean Marion was a borderline all-star guy. Joe Johnson early on, Quentin Richardson had some great players around well, him. And I'd have to say the Phoenix Suns were horribly mismanaged at this time. With mm-hmm. You lose a guy like Joe Johnson. They just lost a lot of assets that would have been valuable in a championship run. And also devastating for Nash is the fact that he doesn't get to stay together with Dirk because as great as those Phoenix teams were, I think you argue a Nash-Dirk duo is better than anything else. And Mark Cuban's come out and said, I regret deeply that Mm -hmm. we didn't bring Nash back. Mm -hmm. Nash aged as well as just about anyone. Obviously got a late start to his peak, but was still, I mean, when they made the Western Conference Finals in 2010, he was like 36 years old. And, and you say late. I mean, he was behind Jason Kidd. He was behind who else? There were some Kev, was Kevin Johnson still there or I don't know. It wasn't Johnson. It I was, don't think so. It was definitely Jason Kidd yeah. and another really good point guard. Mm-hmm. That that Phoenix Suns point guard rotation was deep. Yeah, well, was Marbury on those teams? It may have been Marbury. Okay. Um, let's move on to number six since we agreed on that. Who do you have at six? So number six, I have James Harden. Okay. I have James Harden's former teammate, Chris Paul. So I'm going to take Paul first because I have Harden a few spots higher. So I figure we might as well do that timing wise. You ran down the achievements. Basically, I think one of the most significant things, seven time first team all defense, four time first team all NBA, a four time assist champ and a six time steals champ. Also incredibly efficient in his career. 18 and a half and nine and a half on 47, 37, 87 splits. And he's a guy that has never made mistakes. 2.4 turnovers per game in his career. A 3.94 to one assist to turnover ratio. And he impacts winning in a big way. And this is why I don't think you can necessarily hold it against him because 
it's basically a combination of injuries in LA and a subpar supporting cast in New Orleans that I think kept him from getting to the finals because in his career, his teams are 10.8 points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor. I compared that to basically every modern NBA great guard from this century, which is when they started getting play-by-play data, which made these statistics possible. The only guy better than him is Steph. He's significantly better than Nash, Harden, Iverson, Westbrook, Kyrie, every other name that you can throw out there from this generation because he totally impacts winning. He's not just an all-time passer. He's an all-time defender. He's an elite closer. And if you look at his career... When he's been at his best, 2007 to 2009 in New Orleans, an incredible two-year run, willed that team to 105 total wins, averaged 21.9 and 11.3 and 2.7 steals per game on 49.5% shooting. And if we look at his playoffs career, I'll ask you this first, Logan, do you consider Chris Paul to be a guy that has underperformed in the playoffs? Yeah, I think so. I would argue against that. 21 and eight and a half in the playoffs. He's been in the playoffs 11 of the last 12 years, and he's won a series in six of those years. And I don't think he's ever underperformed in the playoffs. Obviously, the signature failure of his career is the blown 3-1 lead in 2015 against the Rockets and the blown 19-point lead in Game 6 of that series. But he still averaged 21-10 and 10 on 49% shooting in that series, scored 31 in Game 6, 26-10 and 10 in Game 7. But of course, and this is the lasting issue with Chris Paul, missed the first two games of that series with injury. I think you can attribute his lack of deep playoff runs to injuries more than anything else, which I'm not going to dramatically hold against him. And obviously, Game 7 2018 is more reflective of that than anything. The fact that he's not even able to play when he was having an all-time series and was on a really historically great regular season Rockets team that won 65 and 17. I just think he has far more great clutch moments than bad ones. I think that it's Uh, an inaccurate narrative that he's been a playoff underperformer. And I think he is all in all one of the most underappreciated players in basketball history. Yeah, I would say that he's very underappreciated. And I just wanted to mention, Carson, I know you remember this moment distinctly. Mm -hmm. May 2nd, 2015. I remember this because it was the same date as the Manny Pacquiao, Floyd Mayweather Mm -hmm. fight. And Mm -hmm. they also had Spurs Clippers on. And Chris Paul broke my heart that game. I was rooting so hard for the Spurs. And you want to talk about clutch playoff moments. There aren't many better shots than that Chris Paul. What was it? A floater? Yeah. It was a beautiful shot. Right banked off the glass. When you win a series on a shot, that is cemented in history forever. It doesn't matter if it's first round. Certainly helps if it's in the finals and if you're Michael Jordan. But yeah, no, that's an all-time great moment. Why don't you talk about James Harden? So... The reason that James Harden is six and not higher on my list, he has the individual accolades. He has the numbers. I mean, he's been such a dominant scorer and performer his entire time in Houston. He does have one finals appearance in, you know, OKC. But Mm -hmm. obviously, I would say that I think most people would agree that Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant are the two guys there. Why Sam Presti moved on from him. Mm -hmm. But until Harden gets that finals appearance by himself, which I don't know if will ever come because the West is so tough and it's been tough his entire career. I can't have him any higher, I think, than guys like John Stockton and Carl Malone. And if he does get a finals appearance, I think that I could potentially bump Harden up to two because, or two or three, because he's been such a dominant performer. But until he gets that, I can't do it. I have Harden a few spots higher and I will get to that later. But I think that the argument for him is that he is unique on this list in that he is literally unstoppable. People cannot guard him. They <laughs> they are hopeless against him, and he's one of few players in NBA history like that, and the five-year run he's on right now is absolutely ridiculous, and his teams have been great. I think he's been on the second-best team in the West three of the last five years. He's been on some great teams, and he just hasn't gotten over the hump. Let's move into the top five. Who do you have at the five spot? So number five is a guy you've already mentioned. I have Allen Iverson. 
Wow. Okay. So what is it for you about AI that launches him into this strata? Well, the fact that I know you refuted this claim, but the fact that he got such a poor team to the NBA finals that I valued that very highly that a man could do that by himself almost single-handedly. It's an incredible achievement. And that's why I think he has to be on this list in some respect. I just can't put him over guys that I think had significantly better careers overall because of that one fact. I mean, he performed really well in that playoff in that playoff run. Mm-hmm. I do understand what you mean, though. I just, I guess for my list, I value if you got to the finals and how deep you got into the playoffs as the man more than than I guess you. Okay, I think that that's fair to say because I have a guy like Chris Paul high on my list because I think Chris Paul is just a better player than Allen Iverson, and I do think that that really matters. Obviously, I weigh in how close you get to a certain extent. I just don't think it's the mm-hmm. be all end all necessarily. My number five is a guy that got closer than maybe anyone in history. I have John Stockton. Stockton, a 10-time All-Star, two-time first-team All-NBA, six-time second-team, three-time third-team, one of only 18 players in NBA history with at least 11 All-NBA appearances, five-time second-team All-Defense, a nine-time assist champ, two-time steals champ, career averages of 13, 10.5, and 2.2 steals per game on 51.5% from the field, 38.5% from three, and 83% from the line. Another guy, like Chris Paul, really a historical exception in the fact that he was not only such a brilliant passer, he didn't turn the ball over. Only 2.8 turnovers a game. You look at contemporaries like Magic at 3.9, Isaiah at 3.8. A lot of the time that passing genius comes with mistakes, especially in Magic's case because he's taking risks all over the place. You look at modern guys like Luka Doncic, high turnover guys because they take a lot of risks. Stockton was systematic in his brilliance, and he was consistent in his brilliance. Obviously, maybe the most consistent player ever. All-time leader in assists, 15,000 plus assists. No one else has 13,000. All-time leader in steals, 3,265. No one else has 2,700. It's not even close. And you can't tell me that that does not mean something. Played every possible game in 17 of 19 seasons, orchestrated one of the greatest offensive duos ever for almost two decades, He's a top five passer of all time, a brilliant defender, an all-time hustle player, and a model of consistency on 10 50-win teams, 360-win teams, five conference finals appearances, made the playoffs every single year of his career, 19 for 19, won at least a series in 10 years, lost in the finals on two series winning shots in two incredibly close series. Over those 97-98 finals, nine of 12 games were decided by five points or less. Carson, that was a genuine, like, number one kind of take like you you gave the stats that you could have justified him being number one on this list yeah so obviously you have Stockton higher I have Stockton at four and I think some other aspects that you should mention are I mm-hmm. mean he led the playoffs and assist 10 times and in let's see I have it written down 1990 15 assists a night in the playoffs Ridiculous. and then in 1988 14.8 that is insane to think about who who do you have it for At number four, I have Charles Barkley. The reason I have Barkley higher is because I basically agree that he was actually a better individual player than John Stockton. An MVP, an 11-time All-Star, 11-time All-NBA, five-time first team, five-time second team, one-time third team, four times top five in MVP voting, and eight times top six, career averages of 22.1, 11.7, and 3.9 on 54% shooting. His six-year peak, 25.9, 11.6, and 4.1. Incredibly versatile offensively, a guy that could kill you out of the post, could attack off the dribble from mid-range, thought he could shoot the three, he couldn't really, but great passer, a freak rebounder. And in the playoffs, 23, 13, and 4, 1.6 steals per game, 51% from the field, nine straight postseasons averaging 24 and a half plus. The 92, 93 playoffs, 
and 4.3, the crowning season of his career when he wins MVP and goes basically toe-to-toe with Michael Jordan in the finals, averages 27.3, 13.5 in that series. And I think that the issue with Charles Barkley and the reason that actually I give him credit and I put him above a guy like John Stockton is Stockton was in an all-time great situation. Barkley had terrible timing in his career, got one year in Philly where he was near an all-star level and Moses was still around and Dr. J was still around. Never was it uh, at his peak at the same time as another star that he played with. Loses game seven of the Eastern Conference semis that year to the Bucks, and that's just it. Moses leaves, Dr. J leaves, retires a year after that and is never the same. And his best partner in crime when he was at his peak was Kevin Johnson. He got stuck with crap teams in Philly. He went to Houston too late when that team could no longer truly contend. And he carried Phoenix as close as they could ever dream to a championship with that team with an all-time season and an all-time run. I think he's a phenomenal individual talent. And as a true number one that carried his team to the finals and could have realistically won a championship, that's why I have him above a guy like John Stockton. And you should. So how much higher do you have, Barkley, is the question. At number three, I have Carl Malone. Whoa, whoa, okay, tell me all about it. So I know I'm talking about both sides, I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth here because Malone obviously has more finals appearances than Barkley, but I feel like Barkley's hold a little more merit because of the poor teams that he was on. Malone did have a partner in crime in John Stockton, but I felt like in the big moment, Stockton and Malone, they didn't crumble, but they had big time opportunities to actually shut down Michael Jordan and they didn't go through. They'd miss free throws. They'd miss jump shots. They'd miss layups. And it attributes. Now, obviously, Barkley, Barkley would have had more of these opportunities if he had made more finals. And mm-hmm. I can't really hold that against him. I felt that Barkley's one appearance with that Suns team held more merit than the two finals appearances and consistency that Malone showed. Despite Malone, I mean, his all time numbers are mm-hmm. they'll blow you away. Second all time in points. I just feel that Barkley should be higher. So is this a flip from when we did our top 10 power forwards episode and you had Malone above Barkley? Because it's okay if it is. I flipped on Mm -hmm. Chris Paul, obviously. Yes. I kind of like the flip. I think that there's a serious argument to be made. And this is what I was talking about. If Charles Barkley plays his entire career with John Stockton, I could very easily see a world in which he's better than Carl Malone. But as as we discussed on that episode, it sort of comes up down to the theoretical versus reality. So why don't you talk about Malone? A lot of traditional factors about Malone would signify that I should have him over Barkley. I mean, he's a two-time MVP, 14-time All-Star. 11 times he was All-NBA first team, three-time All-Defensive first team. He's eighth in career rebounds, and he's 12th in career points per game. I mean, all-time numbers-wise, Malone is almost untouchable. Mm-hmm. That being said, I think Barkley, Barkley's MVP, Barkley's finals appearances, I just feel that they mean more. And as you mentioned, just bad timing, especially with those Rockets teams late. With those 76ers teams early, Barkley, I felt like, got a you know shorthand of the stick. Yeah, I listen, that's a fair argument, and I'm not going to really fight it because there's a world in which I could see myself making that argument. My number three is James Harden. So obviously we mentioned he uh, he is an MVP. He's five-time first-team All-NBA, one-time third-team. And keep in mind that in 2015-16, he averaged 29, 6, and 7.5, and, and he wasn't All-NBA at all. Three straight years with a top two finish in MVP voting. In four of the last five years, he's been top two in MVP voting. Career averages of 25, 5.3, and 6.3 on 44% from the field, 36.5% from three, 86% from the line. And the reason I have him so high is because his regular season dominance is so far beyond, 
I think you could argue anyone else on this list. Now, his playoff underachievement is maybe more problematic than anyone, but I just think what he's been able to do on a night-to-night basis, being genuinely unstoppable, the five-year stretch that he's in, average 31.7, 6.6, and 8.5. I mean, that's just a joke. That's a joke to do that for a five-year stretch. It's insane to do that for one year. Many all-time great players don't have a season like that, and he has sustained it on really good teams, the 65-win Rockets, the Rockets that, you know, if they had gotten... If they had gotten over the Warriors last year, they would have had a legit title shot for the second straight year. The huge criticism is that he's never been the same in the playoffs. His free throws go down, his efficiency goes way down, and his career average is 22.9, 5.4, and 5.6 on 42% from the field, 33% from three, a full free throw less per game, still averaging 28, 6, and 7 in the playoffs for Houston, does have some memorable meltdowns like against the Spurs, and has never been at his best in the biggest moments, which matters. I don't think it matters enough to knock down a guy that has four top two MVP finishes in five years and is doing things that we have just never seen done. Yeah, I mean, well taken. Carson, I have a question for you. Okay. So, now this is a little off topic, but how many more years of no ring does it take for Giannis to get on this list? That's a good question. Um, Obviously, a few more than he's at right now because this is really only the second great team that he's ever been on. But if you get into like maybe that eighth season realm, ninth season realm, then you start talking and then you start wondering if he's going to be in Milwaukee at that point. And how likely is it that he never wins a ring? I mean, stylistically, I don't think we've seen many players like Giannis be the guys and win a championship. Yeah, there isn't a precedent for a team like the Bucks to win a championship, but we're also in a changing world of basketball. I don't see it happening this year, even though they are a regular season, one of the greatest teams Mm -hmm. ever right now. I just think that it's problematic when your number one star by miles can't be your closer and plays in a style that is so dependent on attacking teams in transition when the game slows down in the playoffs and your closer becomes Chris Middleton, who's a very good player. But show me a finals team that won a championship where a guy like Chris Middleton was their closer. Mm -hmm. So there's no precedent for it. But it's an interesting thing to look for going forward. And yeah, I, obviously he's about to win his second straight MVP at whatever age he is, 24. The dude's a freak. And my final question for you back on James Harden, mm-hmm. can he get any higher on your list? Yes, he can. And I considered putting him above Malone as is. I think that that's a little bit premature because Malone's counting stats and his longevity are so absurd. And the fact that he made it to two finals and really pushed Jordan's Bulls. But yes, I would expect James Harden to probably finish at number two on this list, because I think he's going to keep putting up mind blowing numbers and I don't think he's ever going to get the title. If he never gets a finals appearance, do you think he can be two? I mean, I, you know, being the guy I do, I really do because the Western conference is so insane right now. If you look at his competition, he had to go through one of the greatest teams for a five-year stretch ever in the Warriors. Unfortunately, what probably coincided with his peak and his team's peak when they went 65 games and they just go up against a juggernaut and he loses Chris Paul, of course. I still think the Warriors probably win that series anyway, but man, the Rockets got close. And now he has the LA Titans. He has the Nuggets. He has a really good jazz team that, yeah, they've beaten back-to-back years. And he has the upcoming Mavs with Luka. It's just, it's a brutal era and I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they lose in the first round this year because the, the West is that good. Moving into the top two, who is in your number two spot? So number two, as I've mentioned before, is Charles Barkley. Is there anything else that you would like to add on the Chuckster? Yeah, I'd like to say, I mean, he had three 40-point games in the 93 playoffs. Barkley could just turn it on. And I think, 
I think the concrete argument, and we've mentioned this before, is still that Malone had Stockton. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I'm going to go with <laughs> with the Chuckster. <laughs> yeah, no, that's I think that that is the argument to make for Chuck. I have Malone at number two. 14-time All-NBA, 11-time first-team All-NBA, four-time All-Defense, which I think slips through the crack, nine top-five MVP finishes. He's just one of the all-time great forces. And if a couple things go differently, he's not on this list, right? He's a champion, but I also think that he's responsible for some of those things. But as you mentioned, career averages of 25, 10.1, and 3.6, which has him as the number two scorer of all time, 11 straight seasons averaging 25-plus, eight straight seasons averaging 27-plus. In the playoffs, still 24.7, 10.7, and 3.2 on 46% shooting. And in the 97 and 98 finals, he was okay he wasn't transcendent, and he did not have a finals appearance. He didn't have a finals performance like Barkley did when he actually got there. Averaged 23.8, 10.3, and 3.5 on 44% shooting, and just 60% from the line in 97, and then 25, 10.5, and 3.8 on over 50% shooting in 98. I think the fact that he is able to join an all-time dynasty in the Kobe Shaq Lakers, and along with Gary Payton, and lose the title that year is a sign from God that Carl Malone was just never meant to win a title. Not to cut you off, uh, last thing on Charles Barkley, three-time led the league in offensive rebounds. Yeah, he's got a legitimate case for greatest rebounder of all time, I think. I mean, it's Rodman, Moses, and then maybe Chuck, because Chuck's doing it at 6'5". Do you throw Shaq in there at all? No, I wouldn't. Because when I think about rebounding, I think a huge factor is the physical barriers that you're overcoming. The fact that Rodman at 6'7", 6'8", is the greatest rebounder of all time really means something. I think that Chuck was able to always be in that conversation at 6'5", really, really means something. So I'm just talking about the skill of rebounding, not the raw numbers, because raw numbers, it's <laughs> Wilton Bill Russell blow everyone away because mm-hmm. they had a million possessions a game. So number one, it looks like we have the same guy, Logan, why don't you enlighten the people? It's uh, it's Elgin Baylor, mm-hmm. and it's not close. Mm-hmm. I mean, circumstantially, just circumstantially, Elgin Baylor should be number one on anybody's list. Yeah. He retires nine games into the 1971-1972 season, and then finally the Lakers win a title that year. Obviously, Elgin got a ring from the team, but it didn't really count. I mean, he wasn't actually on the roster for it happening. Well, and he retired because he didn't want the ring. He's he's like, I don't want to get, I don't want to be rewarded for this if I'm not a part of it. Mm-hmm. And on top of that. Elgin Baylor has had so many classic performances in the playoffs, in the finals. You know, a 61-point, 22-rebound performance against the Celtics in Game 5 of the 62 finals, along with, in that series, or in the playoffs, excuse me, 38.6 points per game, Uh 17.7 rebounds. And then in the 63 finals, 38 points, 23 boards, and 8 assists against the Celtics in Game 3. 10-time All-NBA first-team or 11-time All-Star, 3rd in lifetime points per game, and 10th in career rebounds per game. I mean... His career accomplishments coupled with circumstance, Elgin Baylor is far and away the number one player on this list. I completely agree. And I think a lot of people, when it comes to their mind, it's probably Malone because he's the modern guy, but it's really not close. Eight finals appearances, 27.4, 13.5, career averages for Elgin. Not just eight finals appearances, four game seven losses. If you look at his regular season resume, seven years, top five in MVP voting, 24 plus points per game in 11 of his 12 actual seasons, not counting the last two when he didn't play because he was injured. Averaged 34 plus three times. The 61-62 season, to me, always probably the greatest single story to pull from Baylor's career. Averages 38.3 and 18.6 while serving in the army 
on the weekends, or no, he was only playing games on the weekends. 71 point game in the 60-61 season, which he did with only 15 free throws and no threes. 15 free throws isn't a small number, but for a 71 point game, it kind of is. And in the playoffs, averaged 27, 13, and four on 44% from the field. He was a four-time league leader in playoff points per game. And in the finals, you really cannot hold him against him that he never got one because not only does he go up against maybe the greatest team dynasty in American sports history, averaged 26.4 a game in the finals, which is fifth all time, 13.7 rebounds and three and a half assists per game. As you mentioned, that 61 point game is a record that stands to this day. And in the 62 finals, averaged 40.6, 18 and four. Frank Selvi, which we talked about on the last episode, has the chance for the series winning mm-hmm. shot in game seven. Misses, comes back in 63. Baylor averages 34, 15 and four. Then if you look ahead to the 69 season, they add Wilt. Baylor is still putting up 25, 10 and a half and five and a half. They lose in game seven to the Celtics. The next year, it's the same situation. Baylor is still great. They have Wilt. They have Jerry West. And there's no Celtics to worry about. And they lose to the Knicks in seven. He has no business being on this list. He 100% mm-hmm. should have a ring in his career. It is one of the great improbabilities in sports that he doesn't. And just what an all-time great player that is not forgotten, but not as often remembered as he should be. Are we just a Frank Selvi hate show now? I mean, I feel like it's almost... Nice shot, Frank. <laughs> it's almost every episode I feel like we're bringing up Frank Selvi in some manner. Because when you have a historical impact like that and you're not a great NBA player overall... What am I talking about? It's just been the last two. It's just been the last two. It it just felt like we've been doing it with some consistency. Listen, Frank, I want you to know that even 57 years later, I'll be honest, I don't know if Frank Selvi is still alive. So if he's not, I apologize for the insensitivity, but nice shot, Frank. Um, Let's get to some honorable mentions. Frank Selvi is still alive. Oh, thank God. Okay. Who are the first guys off your list? Um, so I actually could almost go to 20, obviously not with numbers, yeah. but with guys that I left off my list. First guy I left off was Dominique Wilkins, followed by Gervin. Uh, then probably Chris Webber, T-Mac, uh, Pistol Pete. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also left off Bernard King, Carmelo Anthony. I I wanted to get Melo on here. You, I just couldn't do it. Yeah, there's, there's not much of a case for Melo. And then probably Dikembe, Vince Carter, and Artis Gilmore. Dikembe gets the shout out. Interesting. Yeah, Dikembe was a great player. He could never obviously be the number one guy on a team. Reggie would be my first guy off. Then my second guy off who you didn't mention, and I guess it makes sense why you didn't mention him. I would have Anthony Davis. I think that it seems like he's going to probably win a ring, knock on wood for the Lakers fans. And he's only in his eighth season, but he's only ever won one playoff series. And it looks like he's going to break that for sure this year and might win a title. 24 and 10 and a half career averages, all NBA first team in his last three mostly healthy seasons. I think he's in probably his fourth year as a top five guy and he's just 26, but I do think he'll get one. Dominique on my list, Melo on my list, but Melo just not a well-rounded enough resume, only one Western Conference final. Another guy that you didn't mention that I would have, Nate Thurmond, because Thurmond was a 15 and 15 guy overall in his career, a great player for many years, for those Warriors teams. And then they literally win the title the year after he leaves. He plays, I think, 13, 14 season for the Warriors. And then he leaves. Rick Barry has that all-time great run against the Bullets and the Warriors end up as champions. A lot of the guys that you mentioned, you know, Bernard King, he's always going to be remembered as a guy that put up huge numbers, didn't win. I think that that will end up being Melo's legacy to a certain extent. A guy that was an incredible score of the basketball and wasn't conducive to winning. And it's sad because me and you, we take a look at Melo and people our age take a look at Melo and we appreciate his greatness. Mm-hmm. But 
when you look in history, that's probably going to be his legacy because you're going to have numbers and you're going to have moments. And when you look at Carmelo Anthony's biggest moments, he has what? That game winner in uh, in MSG over who? The Bulls? Mm-hmm. And there's not really a whole lot else other there. And maybe people feel the same way about BK. Yeah. I think that, I mean, there's a bunch of great scores from the 80s. As we mentioned, the Adrian Danley's, the Alex English's guys that put up insane numbers and don't get remembered. Mellow, I think, will be remembered because of the nature of social media. I don't know how positive his legacy is going to be, though, because especially when guys with the analytics revolution, the fact that this was not a guy that ever played defense, was not particularly efficient, and didn't really do anything besides score the basketball, he might not age well when people look at him in the future. Is there any world where you see, where you would have seen, obviously, in retrospect, mm-hmm. Carmelo Anthony winning a ring, as maybe not even as the first guy, could he have been a second guy? I don't think that he is capable of adjusting to be the second guy, or I should say was. When he was at his best, I think he had every intention of being the guy every time he set foot on the court. And I think he believed that he was as good as LeBron, Kobe, D-Wade, and he was just always a slight but significant tier below. So that's going to do it for us here today on Nerd Sesh. We hope you have enjoyed. I've been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh. Nerd Sesh.